On Easter Sunday morning, the Apostle John outran Peter to the tomb. When he got there, he stooped down and looked in. He saw the linen wrappings lying there, but was apparently afraid to go in. He did, however, see the risen Lord later that evening when he invaded the upper room in which the apostles were hiding. When they saw him, they were frightened, and they thought they were seeing a spirit to convince them that he had actually risen from the dead and was of flesh and bones. He ate fish in their presence. He then met with them and gave them teachings. He gave them their final assignment before ascending into heaven. Well, some 60 years later, the risen Lord appeared again to John. And as to that vision, we come this morning in our study of Revelation. But before we come to the vision itself, we first get a glimpse of the setting. We're in Revelation chapter 1, verses 9 through 11. I, John... Your brother and fellow partaker in the tribulation and kingdom and perseverance which are in Jesus was on the island called Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and I heard behind me a loud voice like the sound of a trumpet saying, write in a book what you see and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum, and to Thyatira, and to Sardis, and to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. The one who recorded the glorious visions of Revelation simply identified himself as John. He didn't call himself St. John, or even the Apostle John. But we're safe to assume this is the Apostle. And at the time of Revelation, he is the last living apostle. So if there was ever a man on earth who could have been revered above all others, it would have been John. But he simply calls himself John, your brother, and fellow partaker in the tribulation and kingdom and perseverance, which are in Jesus. Not only does that remind us that no matter our gifts, and religious experiences, we are all simply brothers in Christ. But it also makes clear that we can never rise to such a stature in the Lord that we cannot be touched by the trials and tribulations and hardships of life. In fact, John clearly stated that he was a fellow partaker in the tribulation. Now, that word may throw you a bit. Because many think of the tribulation as something that is, is coming in the future. And some even argue about whether or not the church will go through it. And while the scripture does tell us that Jesus will return after a period of tribulation, John makes it pretty clear that he and his contemporaries were already in the tribulation nearly 2,000 years ago. That's not to say that times of tribulation may not yet be in the future for the church, but it should be evident that it's foolish to assume Christ cannot come back 
until after some future tribulation. We've had plenty of them in the past to fulfill that requirement. But just what is a tribulation? Well, the word itself was used to describe the grinding of wheat in a mill or the crushing of grapes in a press. So it refers to a time of great pressure that seems to crush and ruin, but in the end makes us more usable, just as grain is made into flour and grapes into wine. John said he was a fellow partaker in the tribulation and kingdom. And I find it very interesting how he couples those terms together. You know, many assume that being part of the kingdom of God means an end to trials and tribulations, but not John. He views them together and recognizes the need for perseverance even in the kingdom. Now, it is true that when the kingdom comes into full power and glory at the coming of Christ, trials and tribulations will be over. And the need for perseverance will be done away with. But for now, being part of the kingdom of God requires much perseverance. In fact, many tribulations will come upon us simply because we are part of the kingdom. As our Lord suffered, so must we. And indeed, John found this to be the case. For at the time of his writing, he was on the island of Patmos due to his bold proclamation of the word of God and testimony to the lordship of Christ. And I assure you, he wasn't there on a Mediterranean vacation. Patmos is a rocky island, some 40 miles off the coast of Asia Minor or, minor, or, or modern Turkey in the Aegean Sea. It's about 10 miles long and 5 miles wide and was used as a place of banishment for political prisoners by the Romans. Now, there's some question as to whether the prisoners there were given the freedom of the island or were compelled to actually work in salt mines. But either way, it was a pretty dismal place, especially for a man in his 90s who was separated from his beloved church. As we mentioned last week, John did minister with the church at Ephesus during the latter years of his life. Jerome tells us that he was banished to Patmos in the 14th year after Nero during the reign of Domitian. And Clement of Alexandria adds that on the death of the tyrant, John returned to Ephesus from the Isle of Patmos. So John was separated from the church he loved from sometime in 94 to sometime in 96 A.D. But on the Lord's Day, he was with them in spirit. Now, when it says John was in the spirit in the Lord's Day, we really don't know what that means. We don't even know if the word spirit should be capitalized or not, referring to the Holy Spirit or our own spirit. Now, we will see him carried away in the spirit or in spirit to the throne room of God, into a wilderness and into a, or onto a great high mountain later on in Revelation. And that does seem to indicate some type of supernatural spiritual experience. But, you know, even when Paul was caught up to the third heaven and given a vision of paradise, 
He didn't know what had happened. He says, I don't know if it was in the body or not. I just don't understand what happened. So I think it's presumptuous of us to assume we know what happened to John here. We don't know what happened to him on the Lord's Day. But he was at least worshiping. And no doubt thinking about those who were gathered together around the Lord's table in Ephesus. When he heard behind him a loud voice, like the sound of a trumpet. And the voice ordered him to write in a book what he was about to see and to send it to the seven churches. Churches that were then listed as to their occurrence on the road that led from Ephesus, northwards through Smyrna to Pergamum, then southward through Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. It's to be assumed that the approximately 15-foot scroll would be copied at each church and then sent on to the next church along the postal route and eventually distributed to all the churches of Asia Minor and eventually, of course, to us. Well, that gives us some idea of the setting for the vision. Let's go on to the vision itself. Revelation 1, 12 through 16. And I turned to see the voice that was speaking with me. And having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the middle of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed in a robe, reaching to the feet, and girded across his breast with a golden girdle. And his head and his hair were white, like white wool, like snow. And his eyes were like a flame of fire. And his feet were like burnished bronze when it's been caused to glow in a furnace. And his voice was like the sound of many waters. And in his right hand, he held seven stars. And out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And his face was like the sun shining in its strength. To see the source of the voice that John heard, he turned. And he saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man. Now, we'll get to the symbolism of the lampstands when we get to verse 20. So for now, let's just concentrate on the one who was in the midst of the lampstands. John first noticed that he looked like a son of man, that he had the form of a human, and son of man can mean nothing more than that. It can even be used to simply refer to an actual man. Ezekiel is called son of man over 90 times. But when John says he looked like a son of man, he seems to be indicating that he was something other than an ordinary, normal man. And Daniel used it that way when describing a vision he had of the Messiah. He writes, I kept looking in the night vision, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming. And he came up to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. 
His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away. And His kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. Now, rather than refer to Himself as the Son of God, Jesus usually referred to Himself as the Son of Man. It had obvious messianic overtones, but it wasn't a blatant or politically inflammatory declaration of His divine nature. But as John continues describing the one like a son of man he saw, it's obvious that he did in fact see the glorified Christ. He was clothed in a robe, reaching his feet with a golden sash across his chest. He was dressed as a king or a priest. His head and hair were snow white, which, which speaks of purity. His eyes were like flames of fire penetrating and transforming. His feet were like burnished bronze, giving him a strong, solid stance. And his voice was as the overwhelming crashing of waves on the shores of Patmos. In his right hand, he held seven stars, which will also be explained in John verse 20. And out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, the powerful and dividing word of God. And finally, reminiscent of the transfigured face of Jesus, John had seen on the mountain three decades earlier, his face shined like the sun at noon. This was an amazing vision. John didn't know what to expect. He just heard a trumpet. He turned around and he saw this image, this vision of the glorified Christ. How did it affect him? And what did it mean? Let's read on. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as a dead man. And he laid his right hand upon me, saying, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last and the living one. And I was dead. And behold, I am alive forevermore. I have the keys of death and of Hades. Therefore, write the things which you have seen and the things which are and the things which shall take place after these things. As for the mystery of the seven stars which you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. And the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Well, John's reaction is fairly typical of those who've had similar experiences. You know, Abraham fell on his face when God appeared to him. Ezekiel and Daniel hit the dirt when they were given a glorious vision. And here John fell as a dead man at the feet of the one who appeared to him. But the response of the one like a son of man is then surprisingly beautiful. The same hand of power and might that held the seven stars reached down to touch John in comfort. And he said, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last and the living one. And I was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and of Hades, which is the grave. Indeed, this was a vision of the glorified Christ. Come in might and power, 
with a message of comfort. This was the first and the last, the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. This was the living one, the ultimate source of all life. This was the one who had conquered death and as such guaranteed to us victory over death. This is the one who appeared to John on the lonely isle of exile. You might be cut off from fellowship with Christians, but no one could cut him off from fellowship with the living Christ. And even here on Patmos, Christ had a job for John to do. He commissioned him to write down the things he had seen and was about to see. Visions that would communicate both the truth about the current situation, the things which are, and the future, the things which shall take place after these things. Now, this gives us the dual focus of Revelation. It's not solely or even primarily a book pertaining to the future. It's a book that had relevance for the Christians living in John's day. And it has relevance for us today. It's a book that speaks about the here and now as well as the hereafter. And then to make sure John understood the significance of Christ coming to him in the midst of the seven lampstands, holding seven stars in his right hand, our Lord went on to explain to him that the seven lampstands were the seven churches. And the seven stars were the angels of the seven churches. Now, there's no problem understanding the lampstands symbolize the churches. While he was here in the flesh, our Lord declared that he was the light of the world. And he told us at his departure that we would become that light. So the picture of a church as a lampstand holding high the light of Christ is very appropriate indeed. The statement that the stars are the angels of the churches, however, raises a bit of a question. Namely, what does he mean by the angels of the churches? Now, taken at face value, it would seem to indicate some kind of guardian angel for each church. But it seems strange that God would reveal something to his son and then communicate it to John through an angel to get the message back to angels. For as we'll see, the individual messages to the seven churches were sent to the angels of each respective church. So I don't believe the angels here are to be taken literally in the sense of divine messengers, but are to be taken as simple messengers with a divine message. And guess what? That would be the preachers or the pastors of the seven churches. Now, I kind of like that picture. I like the picture of the Lord holding me in his hand as I share with you messages from his word. But however you look at the angels, it's clear that Jesus is talking about the churches. He's revealing himself as the one who stands in the midst of the churches and at the same time holds them in his right hand. Now, what a beautiful and comforting picture that is. The risen, glorified Lord is here in our midst, holding us. In his hand. I like the way Ray Summers puts it in his book, Worthy is the Lamb. 
a living, holy, majestic, omniscient, authoritative, powerful Christ stands in the midst of the churches holding their destiny in His hand and says, Stop fearing! I was dead! I'm alive! Forever! More than that, I hold in my hand the keys to death and the grave. You should not fear to go to any place to which I hold the key. You may be persecuted to death, but I am still your king. What a message. What a message for Easter Sunday. And what an encouraging message for you if you have made the risen Christ your Lord and King. If you haven't, what better time to do so than now? Now is the time to come to the light of the world. I realize the message has been hard to hear. I pray you've been able to read it. I pray you'll take the manuscript home and you'll study it because this is a great message of the risen, glorified Christ. I wanted you to hear it as best you could today, but I want you to think about it. I want you to imagine it. I want you to be there with John and see the risen Christ. Don't let this message die in this room. Take it with you this morning. Take it into your life. Let it encourage you. Let it fill you. With the presence of Christ. Let him fill you with his light. And then let him set you on a lampstand in a dark, dark world. And let him hold you in the palm of his hand. That's the picture I leave with you this morning. Let's celebrate that. Let's stand.